Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 211 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Mission Training, Part 3. In addition to fixed-based lunar module simulators in Houston and at the Cape, astronauts also practiced at Langley Research Center on the Suspended Lunar Landing Trainer, which was equipped with realistic surface views and lighting. But the most dangerous landing training was with the Lunar Landing Training Vehicle at Ellington Air Force Base, Texas. As mentioned in previous episodes, this was a free-flight apparatus with a set of rocket motors laced together and supported by an odd-looking arrangement of pipes. It earned the name the Flying Bedstead. Here's a little history of the Lunar Landing Training Vehicle. To prepare for the Apollo flights, astronaut training included flights in many types of vehicles, including a very unusual one developed by NASA's Dryden Flight Research Center in California. Dryden engineers created a vehicle that allowed astronauts to develop the techniques for an actual landing on the lunar surface. This vehicle was called the Lunar Landing Research Vehicle, or LLRV. To simulate conditions on the moon, where there is practically no atmosphere and the gravity is only one-sixth that of the Earth, the vehicle utilized a very efficient tubular steel construction and an automatically controlled jet engine that counterbalanced five-sixths of the vehicle's weight. NASA pilot Joe Walker was the first to fly in the LLRV in October 1964. After the first LLRV concept was thoroughly tested by Dryden and accepted as a training device, three modified versions were built. These were the Lunar Landing Training Vehicles, or LLTVs. Like the earlier LLRVs, they were also built by Bell Aerosystems of Buffalo, New York. A conventional jet engine producing 4,200 pounds of thrust was used for takeoff. Then the pilot switched to hydrogen peroxide thrusters to control the rate of descent while simulating a moon landing. Because of the lack of lunar atmosphere, steep angles were required to turn the vehicle. He also had eight small rocket motors mounted on the side of the craft that maneuvered the vehicle in flight. This movement allowed the pilot to move horizontally and simulate the selection of possible landing sites. He could also simulate the initial portion of the lunar takeoff. Dryden's lunar landing research vehicles may have looked more like giant insects 
and devices to help moon flight and landing techniques, but their contributions to the Apollo program were extremely significant. The first person to walk on the moon, Apollo 11 astronaut Neil Armstrong, said later the project would not have been successful without the type of training and simulation developed on Dryden's lunar landing research vehicles. Unfortunately, the lunar landing training vehicle had some issues that needed to be worked out. In May 1968, a failed thruster led to Neil Armstrong having to eject from the vehicle just before it crashed. One of NASA's most experienced pilots, Neil Armstrong, had had his share of hair-raising adventures in both the X-15 rocket plane and the Gemini spacecraft. With the LEM, however, he had to learn a whole new way to fly. Armstrong activated the trainer for another landing simulation. Equipped with just enough fuel for a six-minute flight, the trainer balanced on the thrust of its jet engine like a dinner plate on a broomstick. Each moment teetered on the brink of calamity. And then a thruster failed. Armstrong tried to compensate. Armstrong pulled the ejection ring at the last possible moment. Apart from a bloody tongue bitten on impact, he was unharmed and anxious to climb back on board. Neil was anxious to resume training, but his accident led to grounding of the vehicle. After completing the accident investigation in November of 1968, Joseph Algranti, head of Houston's Aircraft Operations Office, had to eject out of another crashing lunar landing trainer just one month later, which grounded the vehicle again. The accident board reconvened, presenting its findings in mid-February 1969. Some of NASA's top officials thought the crew could get sufficient training on the static simulator and on the tower suspension facility at Langley, but the astronauts and their support personnel insisted that this free flight vehicle was essential to provide the experience they needed before flying the last 150 meters to the lunar surface. In March, after two sessions, the Flight Readiness Review Board decided to resume the training flights. Harold Rehm, who had flown these lunar landing trainers 35 times, was ready to put the vehicle through a dozen hops in early April. George Miller agreed to let Rehm test the craft, but he told Gilruth he wanted another evaluation before any astronauts flew it. The next month, Deke Slayton summarized for Gilruth and his top staff the aerodynamics and handling characteristics of the trainer, which had been modified to overcome its unstable tendencies. Gilruth's group was satisfied, and Miller consented to the resumption of astronaut flights. During three consecutive days, June 14th through the 16th, Armstrong successfully rehearsed lunar landing operations with the lunar landing training vehicle. In addition to lunar landing training, Neil and Buzz had to be trained to work on the surface of the moon. By late summer of 1968, it was time to find out if astronauts could unload and set up the experiments in the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiments Package built by the Bendix Corporation. 
NASA headquarters asked the Manned Spacecraft Center to schedule a demonstration on August 26th and 27th. Harrison Smith and Don Lind were the test astronauts for the occasion, and Smith was not happy with the results. He said there was too much activity during the first period outside the spacecraft, and there were no clear procedures for a second. At a review the next day, Apollo spacecraft program manager George Lowe suggested that the first landing mission include only one walk on the surface. He listed the priorities as he saw them, first taking a sample of the lunar material in the immediate vicinity of the lander, second inspecting and photographing the vehicle to make sure everything was in order, third gathering at least one box of selected lunar surface soils and rocks, and fourth setting up either a partial lunar surface experiment package or an erectable antenna and television camera. Lowe proposed that the planned field geology investigation be eliminated. Apollo Program Director Samuel Phillips from headquarters realized after watching the demonstration that plans for the lunar surface walk would need close attention and some sensible decisions. He asked Houston Director Robert Gilroof to poll that center's key leaders and forward their views so Miller's Management Council could study the pros and cons of the proposed surface activities. At that time, August 30, 1968, Rose reported to his flight operations planning group that the first landing mission would have two flight plans. The first called for one crewman to lead the lander and the deletion of the experiments package. The second plan required both the commander and the pilot to get out and set up the six experiments in the package. Houston knew that Phillips favored sending only one man on the moon, but Gilruth wanted both crewmen to go so they could assist each other if necessary. Gilruth's managers also suggested deleting both the experiments package and the lunar geology investigation. Phillips passed Houston's recommendations on to the council with the reminder that descent, landing, and ascent maneuvers were a new task as well and that the astronauts needed all the training they could get. Eliminating the experiments package would give them an additional 180 hours to train for the more basic chores. Gemini experience had demonstrated the wisdom of proceeding step by step with very light workloads on the early flights leading to more crowded schedules in later missions. This plan would mean a very small return in scientific data from the first lunar landing and would invite criticism from the scientific community. Wilmot Hess in Houston was already urging that at least some easily handled contingency experiments be included. Phillips also told the Management Council of Houston's preference for a single period of exploration outside the spacecraft. Although he still did not agree that both pilots should get out, he conceded that more data would be gained from the interaction of two men with the lunar surface. Phillips added that the psychological effect on a crewman of landing on the moon and then being forbidden to step out on the surface must be considered. In its October meeting, the Council approved the use of a scaled-down experiment package called an Early Apollo Scientific Experiments Package. This consisted of two sub-packages. 
one containing a passive seismic experiment, a solar cell array, an antenna, and two plutonium heaters. The other, a laser ranging retro reflector. Apparently, the council sided with Houston in its views on activities outside the lander because the center began planning for a two-man exploration at a mission review meeting on November 1st. The second astronaut would disembark after the first had been on the surface for an hour, and the total time outside would be three hours. Lowe asked his engineers to make sure that the control center was prepared to watch over the lander's systems while both men walked on the moon. In February of 1969, NASA officials decided to construct a one-sixth gravity simulator in the centrifuge building to get a closer look at lunar locomotion. A pathway with a simulated lunar surface around the periphery of the 46-meter diameter rotunda would provide a walkway of unlimited length. Dressed in full regalia and with umbilical lines attached to the instruments inside the centrifuge checking biological and metabolic data, an astronaut suspended by a harness that would bear all but one-sixth of his weight could practice for walking and working on the lunar surface. Since the simulator was completed too late in their training to be much of use to Armstrong and crew, and since they did not plan to venture as far away from the lander as later crews, Armstrong and Aldrin would check out and evaluate the facility after their flight rather than before. Physicians were getting some of the desired data during underwater training, where locomotion was similar to that experienced in space. And in KC-135 aircrafts flying the Keplerian trajectories, which duplicated weightlessness for a few seconds at the top of the flight arc. This is oftenly called the Vomit Comet. Also during February, Miller asked Gilroof to hold a lunar surface demonstration similar to the one given in August of 68. Gilruf arranged the exhibition for the latter part of April 1969, and Phillips Certification Review Board would study the exercise to check on the status of that part of the mission. An extravehicular activity committee set up by Gilruth under his special assistant Richard Johnston had already conducted many reviews of the plans, procedures, and equipment. Miller was pleased with the session, telling Payne that the simulation was smooth and the crew was ready for the first lunar landing. But Phillips was disturbed when the demonstrators used a rope and pulley to haul equipment and samples up and down from the cabin to the surface and back. He suggested that the astronauts carry the materials in one hand. Lowe explained that the first rung on the ladder was 65 centimeters from the surface and the crewmen could lift their legs only 30 centimeters with any ease. The astronauts would have to hop or pull themselves up using both hands which they had done successfully in water and on the KC-135 aircraft. By the end of June, the final version of the Lunar Surface Operations Plan was completed. In another attempt to simulate lunar surface conditions, Max Faget's group set up a model of the lander in a thermo-vacuum chamber in Houston. 
The chamber was not big enough for the pilots to move a hundred meters away from the craft as they had planned to do on the moon, but the engineers did provide the desired lighting, a 15-degree sun angle, and the proper temperature range. The crew crawled out of the lander, pulled a package from the modular equipment storage assembly section in the descent stage, and deployed the experiments. But, during one of these sessions, Armstrong had to report, quote, Mission Control, this is Apollo 11. We can't get the hatch open, end quote. While the chamber's tests were going on, two dozen engineers, mostly from Faget's directorate, held monthly meetings on the status of the extravehicular mobility unit, the moon suit. James Chamberlain, one of the nation's top space vehicle and equipment designers, led the group, which operated much as Rose's flight operations planning team did. The design review board studied the system piece by piece and then assigned crew systems division specialists to work on specific problems and submit their resolutions for the board. For example, Thomas Mattingly, the astronaut representative on the board, reported that the reflective gold coating on the helmet visors peeled after several cleanings with solvent, allowing light to leak through. Another area under study was how well the crew could grasp lunar samples with gloved hands. During a chamber run, the systems people coated one of Armstrong's gloves with silicone and left the other uncoated. Armstrong reported that the treated glove worked better and the board approved the change, which upset the scientist. Hess complained that the silicone would contaminate the lunar samples and pointed out that his group would have enough trouble with contamination by the fumes from the descent engine exhaust and the attitude thruster fuel. Hess wanted to get rid of the silicone, but he was reminded that time was too short to look for a substitute. Crew Systems Chief Robert Smiley added that silicone was basically inorganic and that the tips of the gloves fingers and the lunar boots were already made of that substance, so coating the gloves should not make much difference. Chamberlain's board also investigated suit fit and mobility. In chamber sessions on March 27th and April 7th, Armstrong complained that his sleeves were too tight and asked that some of the bulky material be removed from the inside of the elbow. When he bent his arms, he said, some of his capillary blood vessels ruptured. Aldrin, too, wanted adjustments, such as shorter suit arms. There was some discussion about how hard it would be to walk on the lunar surface wearing the big 85-kilogram pack on their backs even though the moon had only one-sixth of Earth's gravity. Using Don Lind as a test subject, crew systems discovered that there would be a small shift in the center of mass. The crewmen would compensate for this by leaning slightly forward. However, if they went too far, they might overbalance and fall. Throughout the training period, people worried about the crews moving around on the moon. In March 1969, Phillips wrote Lowe that it bothered him that there was no way to measure energy expenditure 
or carbon dioxide production during the lunar walk. Lowe replied that the measurements already planned, which were oxygen and water consumption and heart rates, would tell what was happening and the system's monitors would watch the display indicators very closely. Mission planning and crew training were only two of the many activities that had to be carried out for Apollo 11. NASA and contract employees worked out procedures and prepared facilities for handling and studying lunar samples, drafted recovery plans for both the crew and the moon materials to calm fears of back contamination, and tested the lunar module. John Pickering, NASA's Director of Lunar Receiving Operations, outlined a schedule of month-by-month activities that would have to be carried out if the receiving laboratory was to meet the deadline after the return of Apollo 11. Gilruth set up an operational readiness inspection team in October, headed by John Hodge, to check out the laboratory. In January of 69, Phillips added the receiving laboratory to the other items that would be reviewed by the certification board. Phillips named five major aspects for study. 1. Landing and recovery procedures. 2. Laboratory operations. 3. Astronauts and sample release plans. 4. Sample processing and distributing plans. and 5. Scientific investigations. Gilruth set the review for February 3, 1969 with an agenda that included briefings on all activities from the time the astronauts landed on the lunar surface until scientific results were reported. The Lunar Receiving Laboratory covered 25,300 square meters. Public interest focused on the crew reception area which served primarily as a quarantine facility for astronauts and spacecraft with their attending physicians, technicians, housekeepers, and cooks. Scientists were more concerned with the sample operations section, where the lunar materials were to be analyzed, documented, repackaged, and stored within a biological barrier. The third and final area contained support and administrative personnel, laboratories, offices, and conference rooms. Employees who worked here outside the barrier were free to come and go unless they accidentally came into contact with the lunar materials or the astronauts. In February, these teams went through a six-week rehearsal of the events that would take place from the arrival of the moon rocks to the end of the quarantine period. It was obvious that the laboratory teams were not ready. Gilruth sent Richard Johnston to take charge and to start a crash program to get the laboratory moving. Johnston ran practice tests of all laboratory procedures, insisting on participation by principal investigators assigned to the experiments until he was satisfied that everything was in order. In January of 1969, Gilruth asked Johnston to find out what the Houston senior staff thought was needed to prevent back contamination. To help this group out in making judgments, Johnston set up meetings for specialists on landing and recovery, flight crew support, laboratory preparations and operations, and agenda summaries of coming meetings of the Interagency Committee on Back Contamination. 
In the meantime, Payne had turned over back contamination responsibilities to Miller, who began discussions with the representatives from the Departments of Agriculture and the Interior and the U.S. Public Health Service. These scientists visited the laboratory in mid-February and asked for tighter controls on even the most minute operations. In May, Gilruth established an Apollo back contamination control panel, similar to the spacecraft configuration control boards, to conduct very strict reviews of any changes in their facilities or procedures. Now, transitioning into quarantine. A successful quarantine would depend on carefully worked out spacecraft, lunar sample, and crew recovery procedures. In November of 1968, Washington asked Kraft's recovery operations people to conduct an end-to-end dress rehearsal simulation. The simulation would use the mobile quarantine facility. The facility resembled an airstream camping trailer without wheels, and it was capable of supporting six people for ten days. The simulation was begun when the mobile quarantine facility was passed between two ships near Norfolk, Virginia, about the time of the Apollo 9 recovery. Four test subjects made a trial run in the quarantine facility from the Pacific to Houston. There were a few hitches in working out the recovery plan. Any contamination that the command module might pick up from the lunar module could be neutralized by the searing heat of the Earth re-entry before the vehicle splashed into the Pacific. The planners intended to lift the command ship aboard the prime recovery vessel and park it next to the quarantine trailer so the crew could move quickly into isolated quarters. However, this idea had to be abandoned because the attachment loop on the space vehicle was not strong enough. It could have pulled loose and dumped the craft, crew, and all into the sea. Crew system specialists then came up with what they called a biological isolation garment, B-I-G, in technicians' usual shorthand. The crew would climb from the spacecraft into a raft, put on the garments, which really made them look like creatures from outer space, ride a helicopter to the ship, deplane, and enter the trailer. Kerwin and Collins tested the garments in a tank and discovered that the face mask filled with water when the inhalation valve was submerged. If rough seas dumped the crew from the raft, the biological barrier would be broken when they pulled off the mask to keep from drowning. But this problem was corrected. Procedures were impressed on the crew of the carrier Hornet. Details were cleared with the Interagency Committee on Back Contamination, and a notice was published in the Federal Register. On the 26th of June, Kraft notified everyone concerned that procedures for recovery and quarantine were ready. Most of the flight readiness reviews for Apollo 11, including mission content, lunar module, command and service modules, government furnished equipment, 
back contamination and medical status were held from the middle to late June. With so much concentrated activity now, Miller began to worry about possible fatigue overtaking his workers. When he wrote Gilruth of this concern, however, the gist of his message was, Worry along with me, but don't allow it to interfere with driving your staff at full throttle until the lunar landing. And they did drive on. On July 14th, Director Phillips confirmed that Apollo 11 was ready for flight, and NASA senior management agreed that the crew was ready for a July 16th launch. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 211 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11 Mission Training Part 3 and Contamination. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that as well as download every episode of the podcast on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Had a few afterthoughts on this week's episode. I have talked about the lunar landing training vehicle several times, but I still wanted to include it as part of the training episodes. Now, do you think that Harold Ream felt like he was kind of expendable? Remember, he was the guy who flew that LLTV 35 times. And he was the first to fly it after the second crash and investigation. Remember, George Miller said it was okay for Ream to fly it, but no astronauts could fly it until it was thoroughly evaluated. <laughs> Now, I can see where Miller was coming from. NASA and the country had a lot more invested in the astronauts than in Harold Ream. But still, don't you think Ream would have felt kind of like he was expendable in that thing? (laughs) Anyway, that just struck me as funny there. But I am glad that Armstrong got to train on it before Apollo 11, and I believe that did help quite a bit. I found it interesting that planners at one point were considering sending only the commander out to walk on the moon, leaving Buzz in the lander. Now, that would have really upset Buzz if it would have happened. Remember how much a fight he put forth to be the first on the moon? And then, just think, if he wouldn't have gotten to get out at all, he would have had to stay inside the lunar module. Can you imagine how bad that would have made him feel? That would have been awful to get so close and not to get to go out on the moon. Man, I'm glad it didn't happen that way. I had some time after I covered the training, so I added in the uh, contamination information on this episode. And I mentioned that the mobile quarantine facility 
looked like an Airstream camping trailer. Well, Airstream did build the thing, and in case you do not know about Airstream, that's an American brand of luxury campers and caravans. They're easily recognized by the distinctive shape of their rounded, polished aluminum coachwork. The body shape dates back to the 1930s and is based on designs created by Holly Bolas, who had earlier overseen the construction of Charles Lindbergh's aircraft, the Spirit of St. Louis. So, Airstreams. And they still sell them today, and they're quite expensive. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage at spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. Do have a little bad news. The podcast had a dismal week for funding. Not only did we not receive any new one-time donations, that would be zero, zip, nada, nothing, We lost two donors on Patreon as well. Oh my goodness. (laughs) It hadn't been... It's hard to remember having a week that bad as far as funding was going. Mercy. I hope we can do better next week. So, that actually brings the total of Patreons down to 111. 39 short of the goal of 150 that we're trying to reach before the end of the year. And our overall donors are still at 176 with a goal of 300. For those of you enjoying the content provided here and you haven't donated yet, please consider supporting the podcast. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. On the other hand, for those who have already donated in 2017, I certainly do appreciate it. And I have a a few items to give away to the donors that have donated thus far. I had several of these Orion Desk model kits to give out. Now, the model is of an Orion spacecraft, service module, and the solar arrays. It is made out of cardstock, not plastic. This is cardstock. To assemble it, you just push out the pre-cut parts and fold them together. It will take a little time to put it together if you, in order not to rip anything. Remember, this is paper. It is a paper model. Okay, to select the winner from the donors, I gave every donor a number from 1 to 176. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number 90. Donor number 90 is Benjamin Rackley at the Soyuz level. Benjamin, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, and I will mail this out to you. Next week, we will have another drawing for another one of these Orion desk model kits. I was pleased to see the podcast receive two new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I'd like to thank Spaceman Spiff 2017 and Melon 2007 for taking the time and effort to write a very kind review. I really appreciate those reviews, 
and giving the podcast the all-important five-star rating. Thank you so much for doing that, going over to iTunes and giving us the five-star rating. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And we have reached the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. We will be in pre-launch next week. In podcast news, May had the fourth highest downloads so far. In May, the podcast was downloaded in 99 countries around the world. These are the top 10 countries with the most episode downloads. Number 1, U.S. 2, U.K. 3, Germany 4, Australia 5, Canada 6, Japan 7, Brazil moves up to 7th place. Sweden moves up to 8th place. The Netherlands moves up to 9th place. And France moves up to 10th place. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. I hope to get episode 212 up by next Thursday. So long for now.